Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. So as many of you know, my wife Melissa is an amazing artist. She paints works that inspire and seek to convey the beauty of the wonder of God's kingdom. But what many of you probably don't know is that actually Melissa and I met in college where we were both art majors. So while I too enjoy painting, I spent most of my time elbow deep in glaze and clay because ceramics and sculpture is what really captured my imagination. Um, just working with the elements, the tactile nature of it, going from like dry, hard clay and you could you know, get water back into that and recondition it and then turn it into a beautiful vessel. And then the fire, pro- I love the fire part. Maybe it's just the, the pyromaniac in me, but you know, playing with, uh, not playing, going through the process of firing your, your uh, pot, bringing it to temperature and all that. I loved everything about it. It was, it was just so amazing. And one thing that working with ceramics and working with painting has in common is how vital the finishing process is to get a, a work of art that will last and sustain. So in ceramics, it's a matter of reaching the critical temperature so that your, your porous, kind of fragile vessel becomes hard and solidified and can hold liquid, you know, can kind of do the purpose of which it was created for. In painting, the critical final step is, especially in oil or acrylic painting, is the varnish, the final varnishing that happens over the paint. So once the artist has perfected the image that they've carefully created, they allow it to cure, and then they seal the image with a protective varnish. This enhances the way the painting looks, but it's also there to protect the painting from dust and just contaminants, even from damage that might, it might uh, kind of come in contact with. And so what's fascinating to me, what's fascinating in the varnishing process is that at least kind of the paintings we see from the Renaissance, that, that varnish isn't the same stuff we have today. And so that varnish was not intended to be permanent. For paintings that are intended to stand the test of time, inspiring and bringing on wonder through decades uh, or even centuries, those paintings must be occasionally renewed. If left uncared for, the varnish tends to age and it kind of gets this yellowy, dark look to it. They become inundated with dust and grime. The varnish can even crack and damage the original painting that it had been meant to protect. At the very least, it distorts the vibrancy of the original true image. So as you know, I'm the video guy, so we have a video that we can watch here to help demonstrate. And so, conservators, conservationists, they must carefully and sometimes arduously work to preserve the original image in order for it to retain its purpose and impact to all those who would see it. They must layer by layer work to remove the years of dust and grime. Is the video working? There we go. (laughs) They must, you know, with patience and, and sometimes diligence, work to remove the layers of dust and grime. 
which threatens to distort the original masterpiece. So as we continue to watch this process unfold behind us, allow me to present an analogy that will guide our time together this morning. In his recent book, The Unvarnished Jesus, author Brian Zahn says this when thinking about how he considered preaching and teaching of Jesus. I was attempting to remove the layers of lacquer, compromised, comprised of cultural assumptions that prevent us from seeing just how challenging and compelling Jesus and his message really is. As 21st century Westerners, through no fault of our own, the Jesus that we know is often so buried beneath centuries of cultural misunderstanding that it's sometimes challenging for us to hear and see Jesus for who he really was. Oftentimes, we, the church, even through our best intentions, we've maybe varnished over his image in such a way that it takes care and discernment to recapture the original image, the original message of what Jesus was saying and teaching and demonstrating. And of course, that's what we try to do. That's what us preachers try to do. We try to help kind of uncover, unveil that message and bring it back to our memory. So continuing in his book, Brian Zahn says this, I wanted a Jesus who had been overlaid with so many accumulated meanings as to be impossible to see, to once again announce himself as himself with the absolute force and sovereign authority to obliterate the millions and millions of counterfeits that I had developed of him in my mind, in my own understanding. So in other words, with an open heart, with an open mind, and with the Holy Spirit as our guide, we can seek and find the beautiful nature of God that Jesus portrays for all of us to see. And of course, that's what we try to do here each morning, isn't it? We desire to see anew the image of Christ in its pure, true form. And unlike a single painting hung in a single gallery, all those who see Jesus for who he truly is, we're invited to become image bearers along with him of his truth, allowing all those that we encounter to see Christ in us. But we'll hold on to that idea. We'll come back to that as we kind of get further into this scripture. So as we're seeing demonstrated here on the screens before us, with care and patience and determination, you can be amazed at what you find when you investigate the teachings of Jesus. So what do you say? Should we do that this morning? Let's dive in. Let's do that. We'll be using Mark chapter 11 to help guide us. We'll be focusing on verses 27 through 33. So it'll be on the screens for you. Join me as we hear God's word. And again they came to Jerusalem. And as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the elders came to him and said, by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority to do them? And Jesus said to them, I will ask you a question. I will ask you one question. Answer me and I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did the baptism of John come from heaven, or was it of human origin? Answer me. 
They argued with one another. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say, then why didn't you believe him? But shall we say of human origin, they were afraid of the crowd, for all regarded John as truly a prophet. But so they answered Jesus, we do not know. And Jesus said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I'm doing these things. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Dear Lord, we ask that as we kind of try to unpack this scripture and to consider these words for us and what they mean to our hearts, Lord, once again, we guess, lay ourselves before your cross and ask that, Lord, you would speak into us, you would guide us, and Lord, you would form us more into your likeness. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Well, if you're anything like me and you hear that scripture, you kind of think that Jesus is just being a little bit salty to these guys. Like, and we see him do this from time to time, and usually he's picking on the, the people who should know better, the chief priests, the, the religious leaders. But, you know, honestly, it's a pretty valid question, isn't it? So Jesus was living and operating within a pretty well-organized religious system, the Jewish system, the, the temple system, the synagogues, the education, the rabbis, all that kind of stuff. There was a working order to it. And like any leader of a, of a church or a group, you know, some unguy, unknown guy shows up and he's got his 12 followers, you know, his, his cohorts alongside, and he starts teaching and preaching and saying things that you haven't quite heard before, even doing miracles and seeing crazy things happening, you're going to ask the same question. Like, tell me about yourself. Where'd you come from? So quick poll, how many, how many Hebrew speakers do we have here this morning? No? Okay. Um, all right, how many of you have deep cultural or practical ties to Jewish life and practice and education? No, me either. <laughs> so we're kind of, we kind of have a lot of work to do here to really understand the story. Because a lot of the things that, you know, the people in Jesus' time and the people that Jesus was talking to, that they understood naturally because it was a part of their culture, a part of their system, a part of their daily lives, we just have no awareness of, no connection to. But with some digging, we can bring some understanding into this story. And really, you know, as I prepared for this message, this brought me so much just kind of awe and wonder. And it was just so encouraging to me that how myself, as a Christ follower, 2,000 years removed from the time that Jesus lived and walked on earth, like how is this even possible that we're here together speaking about this man? Clearly something is going on here. Clearly something divine is happening. And we're invited into it. And for me, it was a helpful reminder of the, the weight, the gravity of what it is we do here. Because it's easy to just get into the routine, isn't it? We love coming together and fellowshipping, and that's great. You know, but honestly, we're doing this before this table and before this cross. And it's a beautiful thing. So let's take a quick history lesson. You ready? This will be good. So Jews in the time of Jesus educated their children, boys and girls, in the synagogue. Um, from the ages of five to 12 years old, Jesus and all the other 
Hebrew kindergartners trotted off to synagogue in their new outfits and their backpacks. But rather than being greeted with finger paints and, you know, coloring pages, they were met with the Tanakh. That's an acronym that represents Torah, Nevi'im, and Katavim. These are the Hebrew scriptures. Many of us have heard the word Torah. It refers to the first five books of the Old Testament that we have in our Bible. The Nevi'im comprises the prophets in our Old Testament, and the Ketuvim is the writings, or things like Psalms and Proverbs and Song of Solomon, those books. So these were the handwritten, hand-cared-for, hand-maintained, and sometimes meticulously reproduced God-given promises for his chosen people, Israel. In the days before Amazon.com, or even the printing press, or for that matter, even like hides that had been stretched and scraped and thinned and then pressed between pieces of wood, making those big, heavy codex books. This was before all that. These were made of papyrus, these parchments, these scrolls. And that's what the children learned from. Word for word, the children were taught these messages as a means of understanding who God was and and what his desire is for his people, but also just a way to develop mass awareness or dissemination of God's word. It was before we each had our own Bible study and our own Bible and even on our phones. So the boys were to hear the words of the Torah, the first five books of the Bible, over and over and over and over and over and over again. The goal for these boys was from the ages of 5 to 12 to memorize, word for word, the Torah by the time they reached age 12. So seven years. The girls were to hear the words from the Psalms and and the Proverbs, the scrolls from the Ketuvim, the writings, along with the book of Deuteronomy, which is the last book of the Torah. And it's essentially that's Moses kind of retelling everything we've just heard in the first four books in a series of three sermons that he gave to the people. So like the boys, their goal was to begin to know God's character and to hide his word deep in their hearts. So now, like, sorry, I'm going to probably do this from time to time. A cool side note, you notice when Jesus is talking to women later in his ministry, when he's talking one-on-one with a woman, and he brings up the scripture, what's he quoting from? It's almost always he's quoting from Psalms. It's because that's the connection that they would have. She knows these words. She's memorized them. So he's connecting in a, in a language that she would understand, finding common ground. Anyway, lots of cool little side notes like that. But as girls were developing a foundation of God's story, foundations of upright living, the boys were like, likewise gaining deep understanding of God and memorizing the first five books of the Bible. <laughs> And if they were successful, by the age of 12, they could travel with their family to the temple in Jerusalem, like headquarters, you know? And they would be presented before the ministry leaders there, the religious leaders. They'd be able to participate in even bringing the family sacrifice for Passover, because, of course, this is the beginning of the Passover when all the children come, everyone makes the exodus back to Jerusalem. And during Passover... 
families are thanking God once again for the covenant that he made with them, the covenant to guide and direct them to be their guide. It's a huge milestone in the life of a, of a Hebrew boy. So at the age of 12, where do we see Jesus? In the temple, right? Luke chapter two tells us the story. It doesn't give us like all the nitty gritty details, but we do see Jesus in the temple sitting among the teachers and listening and asking questions. So we can surmise based on the history that really only a successful boy would have been permitted to sit at the feet of the rabbi. Not only hearing, but asking questions. So Jesus had clearly made his goal. I mean, it's Jesus, right? So he, he wrote it anyway. So. But sometimes we forget that Jesus was a, was a man, fully God and fully man. I think it would still work for him. Obviously, the Lord inspired and helped him. God helped him. But Jesus was clearly successful at this point. He was beginning the next step in his education. So from the ages of 12 to 15, these young Hebrew school boys and girls would move into the next phase, which is called the Talmud, or the follower, the disciple. So from ages 12 to 15, successful students would continue in, the, in their education while also then beginning to learn some of the family trade. Of course, we know Jesus worked with his father, Joseph, as a carpenter. But he continued in the Hebrew training, the, the Jewish training, while working alongside his father. And at age 15, students could apply to a respected rabbi to become their disciple or their Talmud. So that would be the next step. You've gone from all the training together, and now you essentially step into the apprenticeship stage. So the Talmud or the disciple would begin learning scriptural interpretation. So now they've memorized those words. But now they begin to learn how to tell people what those words mean for their daily lives. These students would also become scribes in the synagogue. So they'd actually kind of, you know, as the apprenticeship implies, they'd be there. They'd, you know, a lot of things going on in the temple, the sacrifices and things, but also like the daily readings, the readings on the Sabbath. So they'd begin working in that fashion, caring for the scrolls, participating in those readings. And after the readings, then the Talmud would, you know, if they're learning their lessons well, would be given the opportunity to then provide the interpretations, the prescribed interpretations of those words. So looking a little bit forward in our Gospels, in Luke 4, chapter 4, where do we see Jesus? Anybody remember? He returns to Jerusalem. I mean, I'm sorry, he returns to Nazareth, where he's from, and he's invited to read the portion of Torah for that day. So in Luke chapter 4, verses 16 and on, it says this, when he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom, and he stood to read. So interjecting here again, sorry, as a guest Talmud in his home church, he was likely invited to come and do the reading that day. So it was, everyone was aware, here's Jesus who's been, you know, successful in his Hebrew training and his Torah training. And so let's have Jesus read today. That'll be great. And so Jesus was handed the scroll of the prophet Isaiah. It was given to him and he 
unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written. Sorry, I have to interrupt again. Sorry, we're, it's going to take forever to get through here. But, you know, one thing that we have to know is that the, the readings that were done in, in, the, in the synagogue, especially on Sabbath, these were prescribed readings. So much the way the church today uses lectionary to guide our story throughout the year, the Jews used a prescribed set of readings. And so when Jesus opens the scroll of Isaiah and finds the passage, it's not necessarily Jesus was seeking out a passage that was going to make his point and drive it home and like everybody would be in awe. This what just happened to be the reading that was given to Jesus to, to share for that day. So he's not proof texting here. It just happens to be what came up. And so continuing, it says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled the scroll back up and he gave it back to the attendant and he sat down to teach. The eyes of all the synagogue were fixed upon him, and then he began to say to them, Today this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And all who spoke well all spoke well of him and were amazed at the gracious words that came from his mouth. What we need to understand here about this story, again, based on some of those things that we just don't get, we don't capture because we're not Jews or Hebrews is that the interpretation that Jesus just gave today, this word has been fulfilled in your hearing, that was not the prescribed interpretation. And yet, the people, even the religious leaders, recognized the authority with which he was preaching it. So Jesus is not acting like a typical Talmud or disciple. He's acting like a rabbi already. And not just the typical rabbi, but he's acting like a rabbi with shmiha. You want to say that? Shmiha. If you're a Hebrew, you can get that. Shmiha. And this means wisdom, knowledge, understanding. Essentially, this is the descriptor given to a rabbi who has reached the highest level in the culture, the, the Jewish structure culture there. It means that he's reached the deepest level of a scriptural understanding, and therefore he's been given the permission to create his own interpretations of scripture. So he knows the word by heart. He knows the prescribed meanings. But now the rabbi with Shmiha is also able to directly hear from the Holy Spirit, to understand God to such a degree that he can bring new understanding to these messages. This shmiha was passed to rabbi, the rabbis by other rabbis, much, less, much like many churches have the ordination process today, of which I've been a part of, so I can kind of like relate to this. You know, so two or more rabbi who have shmiha of their own would recognize a Talmud's learning and, and success and that he's been successful then even in teaching others as a rabbi, and they would they would affirm on him the ordination or the shmiha, essentially releasing him into his own style of public ministry. And so back to our passage in Mark, 
the question that those religious leaders asked was really a valid question. By what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you the authority to do them? After all, here is a rabbi with his own group of Talmud speaking uncommon interpretation of scripture and conducting miracles. So now, back to that salty answer that Jesus gave. Most rabbi, when asked a question by either their Talmud or even one another, it was kind of custom, it was really common to answer a question with a question. So this isn't Jesus just being sassy. I mean, you answer a question with your own question that demonstrates your awareness, your knowledge of what's being asked, but also reveals the answer in such a way that the person, by answering your question, they, they get the knowledge of what they were asking. But they get it in a way that they are interactive with. So when Jesus said, when he asked about John's baptism, You know, John being someone who was operating a little bit outside again of the structure, the norms, what was expected, it was, it was a question that like really caused these guys to wrestle because, of course, um, they recognize what Jesus is saying because they all heard the story. Likely they were there. There were many gathered together when Jesus was baptized. But what do we remember about Jesus' baptism? His father was well pleased. We heard the voice of God directly, right, Jay? So in Matthew 3, 16, we hear this. And when Jesus was baptized, just as he came up from the water, suddenly the heavens were opened and he saw, opened to him and he saw God descending like a dove and alighting upon him. And a voice from heaven said, this is my son, the beloved with whom I am well pleased. So where did Jesus receive his shmiha, his authority? Directly from God, directly from the Holy Spirit, with John the prophet as a witness. His ordination was not passed down by earthly rabbi with Shmiha themselves, but rather, you know, God himself, the Holy Spirit. But the beautiful thing is what Jesus chose to do with his authority, because oftentimes we saw the rabbi with authority, you know, it's... It's pretty cool when you get to the top of your org. <laughs> you feel pretty good, like, okay, I know all this stuff. And so it's easy for even the rabbi of the time to kind of maybe carry that as a bit of a badge of honor, right? But we don't see Jesus treating the authority that he received in that way. We see Jesus freely giving the authority that was given to him unto others. So, moving forward a few chapters in our gospel, we come to the Sermon on the Mount. So, teaching at the Sermon on the Mount, we saw Jesus, and he says in Matthew 5, verse 17, do not think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish, but rather to fulfill. And of course, that's probably what the rabbi, the leaders at the time were afraid of, that here's this guy that's so popular with the people, and he's just going to tear the whole system apart. But that's not what Jesus is trying to do. He's trying to affirm that Jesus in flesh is the Messiah. 
the written Torah has now transitioned to the living Torah. That before their very eyes, they're seeing the nature of God revealed, not just in words, but in action. He did not conceal it as something to be protected. He freely gave it to all who would hear. You know, the symbolism of the Sermon on the Mount, again, is something that we're not probably catching. But the Jews who were there listening to Jesus preach, it was so obvious. Here Jesus goes up to a mountain to teach. If you're a, if you're a devout Jew, even if you're not a devout Jew, if you're like a nominal Jew, you'd immediately be thinking, oh, this is like Sinai. And here is a teacher receiving God's message, sitting on a rock and giving it out. They'd think, here's Moses. So Jesus, like the symbolism is obvious to the Jews who are hearing it. Here's the word of God given to people through Moses and put on tablets and then, and then transitioned to us. Now here's the new message of God given to Jesus on the mountain and transitioned to us. And Jesus passed that authority on. He chose 12 disciples to give his training, to allow to follow him 24 hours a day, to teach them like all the other rabbi did. So they worked just like the other rabbi did. But again, Jesus kind of had to do it with his own flair, his own twist. So again, remembering how it works, the Talmud, you know, the, the person moving into apprenticeship, they might seek out the various rabbis and maybe they'd like, I'm sure there was one popular rabbi that had like all the guys going to him, you know, and then there's like, you know, the other ones. But, you know, if, if you were wanting to be the apprentice, you would go and apply yourself to the rabbi. You would kind of demonstrate what you've learned. I'm sure there'd be some hard questions. You'd kind of have to interview. And if you were accepted, then you could then become his follower. They would follow the rabbi 24 hours a day, sitting at their feet, literally being covered in their dust as they walked down the road. And the goal was to become just like, like their rabbi. To even understand like their mannerisms, the way they talked, the way they conducted themselves outside of the public's eye, the way they prepared themselves for rest, the way they took their coffee, I don't know. You know, you would do it just like the rabbi. So how did Jesus conduct it? Do we see Jesus kind of waiting in the temple while like the Talmud kind of lined up and were able to present themselves? No, we see Jesus going to the shores of the lake and calling out, hey, put out your nets and then follow me. Jesus chose us. And who did he choose? He didn't just choose the best students. He didn't go to the synagogue, the temple, to see who was there, like, working on their Torah portion. He went to the dropouts, the ones working in the trade, because the ones working in the trade were the ones who hadn't quite made the cut. So they, you know, didn't quite make it to be the Talmud, the, follow, the, the apprentices. So for, at the age of 15, they went full-time into the family trade. And that's who Jesus went to. Again, demonstrating 
that the authority that God desires to transmit to the world isn't just for a select few, it's for all of us. Matthew chapter 10, verse 5, it says, These twelve Jesus sent out with the following instructions. Go nowhere among the Gentiles and do not enter the Samaritan towns, but rather go to the lost sheep of the house of Israel. And as you go, proclaim the good news. The kingdom of heaven has come near. Cure the sick, raise the dead, cleanse the lepers, cast out the demons. So Jesus is passing his authority onto the 12. And it's almost like, you know, he's, I don't know, he's not gauging this, but, you know, did he send them everywhere? No, he sent them just to the Jews. He, he said, don't go to the Gentiles, don't go to the, um, to the Samaritans, go to the lost sheep among our own people and share the word. Again, compelling them to come and see the Lord for he is good. So that's when he sends the 12 out. And just a few verses later in Luke chapter 10, it says, and after the Lord appointed 70 others, he sent them out in pairs to every town and place where he himself intended to go. And he said to them, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore, ask the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. So you're catching the pattern, right? The momentum is beginning to build. Not only is Jesus giving authority to teach and to preach, but he's also actively participating in God's kingdom, charging into the world and redeeming brokenness. We're starting to see healings. We're starting to see people released from demonic captivity. We're starting to see miracles. And it's not just Jesus doing these miracles. It's his followers. John chapter 14 says, Very truly I tell you, the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do. And in fact, they will even do greater works than these because I am going to the Father. And I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. In my name, you ask me for anything, I will do it. Coming out of the last few weeks, we've been studying the, the, the concepts and thoughts of prayer. In this verse and what we've learned in that, in that series on prayer leads us to ask the question, at least I asked the question of myself. You know, I've had plenty of prayers that I've asked in Jesus' name and it didn't happen. You know, Jesus isn't giving us like the, the secret trick. Like those guys are just doing it wrong. They're forgetting to say in the name of Jesus. It's not like, you know, it's not like you're getting a secret pattern here. But what he is revealing is that when you ask for things that are within the Father's will, then he is able to participate in that. And does that mean God's not willing certain people to be healed? I don't know. This is a, one of those big things that we can get into. And we kind of did that in our, in our series on prayer. But what he is saying is that the authority that Christ operated in, that that same authority is given to us and that we're asked to live into that authority in faith. Finally, in some of the final words that Jesus shared with his followers in the Great Commission, Matthew 28, it says this. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. 
Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything that I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And here we stand today, beneficiaries of that authority that Jesus passed on to the 12, to the 70, that then the momentum started growing. We see people like the Apostle Paul in his journey to the, on the Damascus Road, one who had been persecuting and killing followers of the way. God, come and interact with him in such a way the scales fell off and the authority of heaven fell upon him. You know, there's story after story after story of people being faithful to the authority that God gave them. And now we get to be beneficiaries of that. You know, we're clearly centuries away of familiarity and we have centuries of cultural distance from Christ. But we're reminded that God never intended for the good news, the message of Jesus to be guarded and carefully doled out by, special, by a special few. It's a message and an authority that's freely given. Freely as we received, freely shall we give. So my challenge for us today is this. May we renew the way we think about the life and the gospel of Jesus. May we see its truth and potential with fresh eyes, unburdened by the dust and grime and familiarity and false assumptions. May we receive anew its renewal and restoration in our lives and in our community. May we boldly become ambassadors of its authority, sharing it freely with all those whom the Spirit leads us. May we share it with authority. May we share it with truth. May we share it with creativity and flair in the diverse ways that God's gifted each of us. So this morning, as a community, as we gather around this table, may these elements that we receive symbolize the redemption and the authority that Christ offers freely to all those who would receive it. Amen. Let us pray. Lord God, um, we stand in awe and wonder Thank you for coming. Thank you for coming in the life of Jesus and demonstrating for us not only the written word, but Lord, the word lived out through the life of Christ. And God, we're so thankful that this life, this truth, is one that is sufficient to cover every one of our shortcomings to redeem our sin, and Lord, to restore the Christ-like nature that you've created within all mankind. God, we're thankful that the sacrifice of Christ on the cross was not one just to kind of 
cover up our ugly nature in such a way that we can just make it to heaven. But God, that that atonement was one that, Lord, allowed your beautiful nature that's within all creation to be revealed in its fullness. That the sin and the dust and the, the contaminations that cover us, God can just little by little be renewed, can be removed, revealing the image of Christ that's in us all. And God, we're thankful again that the authority that Christ operated in, the authority that, Lord, he experienced in his ministry was not an authority to be guarded, but an authority to be freely given to others. And that, God, you've invited us in to that life. You've invited us in to be members of your family, to be a part of your kingdom, to see your goodness and your mercy and your healing and your restoration come to our environments, our workplaces, our homes, our communities through the Christ living in us. God, may we endeavor to see you for who you truly are. And that might be hard at times. It might mean a little extra study. It might mean passing off or like setting aside assumptions that we've carried for so long in order to see you for who you are. And God, in that work, we ask for your help and your grace. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.